Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello Blue Murder Cubbers, welcome to Blue Murder Club. My name's Lauren and here with me is... Hello everyone, it is Carrie here, one half of Blue Murder Club. How is everybody today? Pause for reaction. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so happy to hear you in my ears, Carrie. Yes, yeah, see, loving life. How's you, Loz? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Busy as always, but not bad. How about yourself? I'm good, I've just noticed your jacket you're wearing. I know, it's quite cool, right? Fuck me! I've got to get a picture and put it on our uh, take away take social media. Yeah. So it's it's a really it's cool. Obviously, I'm laughing and taking the piss because I'm jealous <laughs> and I want one. Um, Sainsbury's. Yeah. Sainsbury's. Was it? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, what, it's a number. Sainsbury's back in 1983. It could have been. <laughs> it could vintage have been. Sainsbury's. Vintage Sainsbury's. <laughs> yeah. So it's white fluffy jumper with a zip up neck with the black. Quilted bit over the shoulders. Yeah, a bit of shelf suit going on. Yeah, you can hear that, can't you? Through the mic, that's the one. Have that. <laughs> With something on the arm. Little pocket. <laughs> Fucking hell. The arm, <laughs> the sleeve has got a little <laughs> quilted pocket with a zip in it. Take photos and I'll point it out in the photo. <laughs> it's classic. It is. It would definitely give the Bruce Jenner tracksuit a run for its money. Oh, I don't know. That is a bit special. It is very special. It's so special. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah, cool. So you're all right? You're good? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Running about. I went to see my mum. My mum's been a bit poorly. Went mm. to see me nan. She's all right. Excellent. Still telling me about sky watching and aliens. And yeah. Yeah, she's going to make me some, I think it was slow gin. You've had it before. Yeah, blackberry, Do you remember? blackberry slow gin. Yep. And what was the vodka she made us? Rhubarb oh, vodka. Oh, that might be what I was, was... I don't know. It might have been a blackberry whiskey, actually. Yeah. I'm not sure. She does like to make them, doesn't she? Yeah. It was a good concoction, whatever it was. They're lethal. Yeah. They warm you up when you're camping, though. Yeah. Which is the main thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Just got it on a case a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. So, uh, we are now... Obviously, we're Series 6, Bloody Britain... About halfway through, aren't we? At the halfway point. Mm-hmm. Today we're covering episode seven. Um, episode seven 
is the case of the Blackout Ripper, Gordon Cummings. And this is a case that was brought to our attention by one of our lovely patrons, Annie Mo. She asked us to cover it on Patreon, didn't it, she? She sure did. And I started to research it and I said to Lauren, I'm going to stop here because this is too big a case for Patreon. Mm -hmm. This should be on the main channel because it's a ridiculously big case. It is, and I've never heard of it. Mm. You know why we've never heard of it? Go on. Because they caught him straight away. Uh, so he never had that... Like cloak of notoriety, yeah, mm -hmm. like Jack the Ripper, because mm -hmm. they never caught him. There's always speculation about what. Obviously, God, I could go on until the cows come home about the speculation about Jack the Ripper, mm -hmm. but the Blackout Ripper was caught. He was more of a spree killer than a serial yeah. killer. Yeah, he did. He just knocked it out in about a week, Done and he was caught. It. Yeah, at the end of that week. But yeah, if they hadn't have caught him, I think everybody would know of the Blackout Ripper. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, when researching these, they come up a few crimes for, during the war that I think where the news was so concentrated on the war, other things, I don't know, like didn't get retold to us from there. So, yeah, there's quite a few cr criminals from then that like, I hadn't ever heard of. Well, yeah, I was quite surprised that there was even like law enforcement. I thought all the young men had been sent off to war, but mm -hmm. there was still police force and detectives mm -hmm. and there were still trials and... Yeah. Everything. It, it was business as usual. Yeah. Even though people, even though the war effort was in full swing. Yeah. Because this um, crime listeners took place in 1942. So this is at the height of the Blitz. Yeah. And we were about two and a half years into the Second World War. So obviously, like you mentioned, everything's all to do with the war. Yeah. But also, a lot of these um, women that became victims of the Blackout Ripper worked in the sex trade. Mm -hmm. And so. What happens is a lot of them, like if there's crimes committed against them, they don't tend to report it. No. Because they'll get fined for being prozies. Yeah. And they'll also the, don't feel the police will take them very seriously. How oh, it bad. So, yeah. So, like you say, there was probably, he probably did commit more crimes against women, but unless he actually murdered them, mm -hmm. probably didn't get reported. Yeah. Yeah. I found in my research a lot of these women already were suffering with cuts and bruises from earlier altercations mm -hmm. with other clients. Yeah. Um, during this time, it was very transient. You always get that, don't you? We've covered it in yeah. other cases where it's a, a time of up upheaval. Yeah, uproar. And transience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people come and go and people slip through the cracks. And um, this was be the case. There's so many soldiers and sailors and servicemen and stuff that are in the war effort mm -hmm. going through London at this point and they all want to get their leg over while they're on leave. So there Ooh, are so yeah. many young women coming from all over the country, mm -hmm. not necessarily to provide those services, but eventually find themselves providing in those services. Service, yeah. yeah. So it is a flourishing business, yeah. the sex trade in London yeah. in 1942. And do you know what is really funny? I was listening to something earlier. And they were talking about all the underground clubs and stuff that was going on. And like even <clears throat> even during the height of the Blitz when there was blackouts and everything, there were still like clubs going on. You know that club that you really like? I can't remember the name. The Windmill Club, where the girls Will stood I'm on Rouge. stage with no clothes on. Well, I'm Rouge. No, the Windmill Club. Oh. So all the girls, they stood on the stage, but they weren't allowed to move mm -hmm. because they were naked. So there was other things like that. Or there was the Café de Paris was yeah. going strong. and um, But once all these proper establishments closed there was all these underground ones that would go on until like three four in the morning where really? everyone just wanted to party because at that point it, it was it was hedonistic times yeah no one knew if they were nah. going to wake up the next day no nah. none of the young men knew if they were going to return home after being sent nah. abroad so everybody was living for the moment yeah. and i just thought that's such an exciting time for if you're a young yeah. person i mean and this is 
like um, nans and granddads live through these. Oh, I love them. And it's funny, like you think of your nan and your granddad as just like pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know the ha- like we don't know the half of it. Yeah, Our lives must not. look boring to them. Them, yeah. <laughs> what they lived through must have been a blast. They must have had an absolute yeah. blast. I hope. My nan's got a lot of stories. Oh, my great nan. So she told me a lot of stories about it. There was a GI called American GI called Dougie. She, she kept hinting mm. at. Bearing in mind she was married, but he was off at war. Me yeah. granddad, me great granddad. So yeah, there was an American GI called Dougie, mm. and for some reason, my husband, his name's Tommy. She loved the name Tommy and she kept bringing it up and I went, why? And she went, oh, because there was a young Tommy and winked at me because mm. that's what they used to call the servicemen. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Yeah. It's funny when you think just, oh, they must have just partied like there was no tomorrow. Yeah. Good on them. Absolutely. Good on them. And so many young women from all over the country would have heard about how swinging it was in London at that point and a lot of them as well you know if their husbands or their sweethearts are away or they've been killed in service mm-hmm. they're going to need to earn money as well yeah so there's a lot of people flocking to London for loads of different reasons you know to be a part of the action to get some mm-hmm. money you name it so um so a lot of obviously the men would have been stationed at barracks there and things yeah. like that so um yeah so before we get into it I've just done a little introduction so here we go London, which had been subjected to a blackout ever since the first German bombings began in 1940, was a dangerous place to be in February 1942. Besides the Luftwaffe bombings, the city was plagued by petty thievery and black market activities. The city's police could not do much about it, as they were stretched thin because so many of their young officers were away fighting um, the Axis powers in Europe, North Africa and East Asia. The remaining skeleton crew of officers simply could not deal with all of the common crime, let alone a serial killer of the magnitude of the Blackout Ripper. Although the spree only lasted a week, this monster carried out four murders and two attempted murders. This was more than a spree, it was a frenzy. Even during a world war, the case of Gordon Cummings, the Blackout Ripper, would make national headlines for the week in February 1942, when the shadow of the Blitz Blackout would cloak Londoners with an extra layer of terror. Dun dun dun. dun 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 So the blackout. Have you got anything about the blackout? Just just a little bit of background, just briefly. No, what no, I've got more to hinting at yeah. what you've done. Yeah. So yeah, just in case you're not aware, most people are. But blackout was just basically everybody who lived in London was told they after dark you couldn't have a light. Mm-hmm. So homes were provided with dark fabric to cover their windows, and you weren't even allowed to smoke a cigarette outside because mm-hmm. apparently the uh, the Luftwaffe could see the light, and then they would know where to drop their bombs. Yeah. So that is what the blackout was just in case you didn't know yeah all those newspapers with the stars taped to the window i've seen that quite a lot what's that for just to black out more so they'd take news paper to the windows too yeah so you ready for this mm-hmm. so there was a couple called john and ann cummings and they had three children the first to be born was gordon frederick cummings in the spring of 1914 Then they had a son in 1917 and finally a daughter in 1920. They lived in Earswick, North Yorkshire. John was a civil servant who ran a school for delinquent youths and Anne was a housewife. As a child, Gordon received a private 
private education in South Wales. With teachers later recollecting, he was much more preoccupied with socialising than his studies. I think the same could be said about most kids, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, some things never <laughs> yeah, change. Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Time will go on and yeah. it will still be the same. So, Gordon did attain a diploma in chemistry at the age of 16, which was, I thought was quite young for the uh, age of mm. um, chemistry. So, yeah, after completing his schooling in 1930, Gordon attended Northampton College of Technology, but he abandoned his studies on the 1st of November 1932. At age 18, he moved to Newcastle, where he briefly worked as an industrial chemist. He was dismissed from the job after five months. And in August 1933, Gordon obtained employment as a tanner in Northampton, do you know what a tanner is? Yeah. Yeah. Tans leather. Tans leather, yeah. Do you know how they use the tan leather? Urine. Yeah. I was going to say with piss, but urine <laughs> will work. So, although he was fired from this employment for poor timekeeping after 13 months, therefore alternating between part-time work and casual labour, then in nine, uh, October 1934, he relocated to London and obtained a job as a leather dresser in a clothing factory, earning £3 a week. He later trained to become a foreman at this firm. While residing in London, Gordon developed a desire to live the life of an aristocrat. He frequented hotels and clubs in the West End. He also frequently engaged in acts of feb or embezzlement to financially maintain this facade. Facade. Facade, thank you. I panicked then, pure panic. Um, and regularly bragged to colleagues of his sexual excursions with local women. To his employers, his extravagant lifestyle impacted on his work performance and he was fired from this job on the 8th of February 1935. So shortly after, he moved his way to his brother's flat in Queen's Mews, Bayswell, while still London, and he considered his next career move. Gordon joined the Royal Air Force in 1939 when World War II was gearing up. He claimed to be the eligible son of a nobleman living off an allowance from his father however we know this wasn't the case and he got the money to support his lifestyle by petty theft the fellow flyboys how cool is that name <laughs> the royal air force was called flyboys i love that name Aww. it's cool right the flyboys the flyboys so they gave him a few names because of this tall story like the duke or the camp he was charming, good-looking, with piercing eyes. He in, uh, in, he demanded on being called Honourable Gordon Cummings. He also liked to put on an Oxford accent. Now, I don't know what an ex Oxford accent is, do it's you? It's just a posh accent. Oh, right. So he's talking rather posh, then. Yes, yeah, talking rather posh, Loz. Like we do. Like we do all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so he enlisted at the Air Crew Reception Centre in Regent's Park, London, where both serving members of the RAF and new recruits were assessed for training. Gordon initially trained as the rigger, tasked with the undertaking of flight checks on an aircraft. He was regarded by his superiors as an ambitious individual and after a year of being in the RAF, he met and married Marjorie C. Stevens. She worked as a West End theatre producer secretary. How cool is that? Mm. The couple married at the Paddington Register office on the 28th of December. The couple had no children. So it was a bit of a weird kind of setup between the couple he was stationed with the RAF and she had her own flat in Southwark, South London. 
So initially, he was stationed at Felixstone, Suffolk, between 1936 and 1939. He relocated with this material research and test organisation to Scotland. And on the 25th of October 1939, shortly after the outbreak of World War II, Cummings was transferred to Helensborough. He remained stationed there until April 1941 when he was posted to Wiltshire. At this posting, Gordon reached the junior rank of leading aircraft man, although he had aspirations to become a Spitfire pilot. And in 19, uh, November 1941, Gordon was sent briefly to Cornwall, where he joined the Blue Peter, and it was a social club. He even helped behind the bar. But when the landlady found out that Gordon was giving his fellow flyboys free beer, she kicked him out. She started to notice that some of her jewellery was missing too. She suspected Gordon but couldn't prove it. The following January, having occurred over a thousand hours of flight experience, Gordon appeared before the RAF selection board to take an aviation exam. His good performance earned him a transfer to the aircrew receiving centre in Regent's Park, where he was to be stationed with 300 other men. He was ordered to report to duty at 10am on the 2nd of February 1942. So, I'm going to just hint on what Carrie opened up with. So, I've said we like to think of London's community spirit and the keep calm and carry on during the Blitz. However, there was a massive romanticising of this time. London was dire, crime was rife, and because of the rationing, there was a great need for hooky bits. The black market was huge, and the war acted as a screen of a side to hide the grim reality of living in London at this time. Death and destruction were part of everyday life. Food and clothing were rationed and in short supply. Bombing caused fear, injury, death and destruction. Families were often separated due to evacuation and fathers going away to fight. Londoners learned to live with the uncertainty and the hardship. Because the men were off fighting, women were often left to fight for themselves and their children. When they're bombing... Uh, when there was a bombing, people often stole valuables of the dead bodies around them and looting. Women who walked alone was assumed to be a good time girl or a sex worker. And it was often said that if they were on their own, they were attacked. They brought it on themselves and they were routinely subject to sexual harassment as expected to put up and shut up even when they were at work. So they were getting it on all sides. So there's hardly any men there to protect them. They're having to really, really like stick up for themselves and they're just getting sexual harassment left, right and centre. So they had a much reason to fear men as they did as the war. In the bright lights of Piccadilly, a lonely airman could find a little establishment called the Brazier Universal where they could find warmth and companionship of a lady of the night. And at Soho, they could find solace with the showgirls and the hostesses. With men in their military uniforms, sex workers may have found a trust in them and in that uniform, so they're not just a rough and tumble. So I think he uses his uniform to his advantage in most of these. So the 9th of Feb is where I'm at. So Gordon visits his wife at a flat to borrow a one-pound note, so that's £60 in today's money. For a night on the tan in the West End of London, he was worried about looting, especially from the bomb attacks, as the War Reserve constables had been given rifles and was told to shoot looters on the spot. 
Also, young servicemen on leave would also carry their gun on them, and it's reported they wouldn't be shy from using it. So they were saying there was a lot of reports, like if a serviceman had come home to surprise his missus (laughs) and she's in bed with someone else, (laughs) he wouldn't be shy in using his gun, you Mm -hmm. know? There was loads of it. So there's a woman laying face up in the air raid shelter in London's Marablone. She had put up a desperate struggle. The electrician who found her... One cold morning, February 1942, had first noticed her torch lying on the ground, then her handbag, then her body. Eighty pounds had been taken from her purse. Her clothes were torn, her face and neck bruised, her shoes were scuffed. With mortar, her attacker had pulled her skirt up over her hips and her underwear down to her knees. Her right breast was exposed and her money was stolen. She had been strangled. The woman's name was Evelyn Hamilton. Born on February the 8th, 1901, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton grew up in a financially stable household in the idyllic Tynan Ware in England's northeast. She was one of four sisters raised by a wizo, uh, widow, wizard, I was going to say. <laughs> so sorry. Wizard, I, call that wizard, I know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> by the widow Lucy. Um, she managed it all to thanks to her late husband's life insurance policy. And by the age of 22, she graduated from University of Edinburgh with degrees in chemistry and pharmacologically. Is that right? Pharmacology? Well done. Evelyn was a private and somewhat lonely woman without romantic partners or even much of a social life. Her boss in Essex, Mr Barnard Gray, described her as eccentric Soon thereafter, she moved to Romford in Essex in order to work in a chemist's shop. The outbreak of war had almost bankrupted the chemist's shop and she had been managing in Essex. And she was passing through London on her way to Grimsby where she had been offered a new job. She had booked a room at a woman's hospital and planned to take a train to Yorkshire the next morning. The last sight of Evelyn, she was 41, had been lay at the evening before at Lion's Corner House at Marble Arch, where she had gone alone for a meal and a glass of wine. No one knows whether the man who killed her struck up a conversation with her there or whether he had picked up her footsteps in the darkness when she left. Somehow she was lured or forced into the shelter where she met her end. She was the first woman to be murdered that week for under the cover of the darkness in the midst of World War II a man who became known as the Blackout Ripper embarked on a killing spree so violent and depraved it left even the hardened police shaken yeah poor Evelyn it's shit oh, isn't it oh yeah did you notice like the date the 8th yeah and she was born on the 8th she'd, on the 8th she'd been celebrating her birthday yeah. the night before they found her dead so she went and had a meal and a glass yeah. of wine. Oh, it's awful. It's flipping tragic. Absolutely awful. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So just the following morning on Tuesday the 10th of February, mm-hmm. 35-year-old Evelyn Oatley was found naked and murdered in her flat. Her head hung over the side of the bed and her blood saturated the floor. Evelyn, who worked as a sex worker, had injuries so horrific they shocked even the most seasoned of detectives. She had been beaten, strangled and had her throat cut, (sighs) severing her carotid artery. Evelyn was then physically and sexually mutilated with a tin opener. Yes, tin opener. It's pretty grim. Curling tongs, an electric torch and a razor blade. Fingerprints were found on the bloodstained tin opener. However, these did not match any of the uh, convicted criminals. Evelyn was born as Evelyn Judd on the 5th of April 1907 in Airby, Lancashire. She dreamed of moving to London and pursuing her dream of entertainment and becoming a singer, dancer and an actress. However, when Evelyn was 15, she fell pregnant and the baby was adopted by a Canadian couple. Evelyn had turned to sex work at the beginning of the war to supplement her income from her job as a nightclub hostess after failing to make it on the stage in the West End. Um, she had a stage name. It was um, Lita, Lita Ward. Nice. <laughs> That's her stage name. I like it. Yeah. Um, so there's some, there, some of her friends were interviewed afterwards. They said she didn't like being alone. She was afraid of the dark, afraid of the air raids and stuff. And overall, she would usually only have customers who were older men as she found them to be less violent. And, um, yeah, so sometimes she would... It was more than the money for her. It was company as well. She mm-hmm. was quite lonely. They described her as being bubbly, full of life, really um, an exuberant person. They'd hear her singing as she walked home and then she'd get into the flat and turn the radio on. And But underneath it all, she seemed like she was quite lonely. She did have a husband called Harold, who was a poultry farmer, but he lived up in Liverpool, so he lived apart. And, um, yeah, so she she was quite lonely, that kind of thing. But it seems like on that fateful evening she had relaxed her rules as she three eyewitnesses informed police that they'd seen Evelyn be approached by a young, clean-shaven man with chestnut-brown hair. 
outside a restaurant the evening before her murder. She was last seen by one of her friends, Ivy, who lived in the same building, entering the property with the man at about 20 to, 20 to midnight, 11.40pm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> her estranged husband, uh, Harold, who lived in Liverpool at the time, had to travel down to identify her body. Due to the lack of mutilation to Evelyn's body at the time, the two murders were not connected, although it was noted by detectives that the perpetrator was left-handed in both murders. So um, that's Evelyn Hamilton's body. Mm -hmm. Evelyn Hamilton had not been mutilated. No. Whereas this Evelyn um, body, she had been mutilated very badly. So at that point, they don't realise that there's any connection at all between the two. 43-year-old widowed mother of one, Margaret Florence Lowe, a.k.a. The Lady as she was just very classy and spoke very well, and by all accounts she carried herself like quite elegantly, mm-hmm. was last seen by a neighbour at approximately quarter past one in the morning on the 11th of February, 1942. Walking along the corridor to her flat, which was at 9 to 10 Gosfield Street, Marleybone, in the company of a client. The neighbour then heard the client leave Margaret's flat later on and heard him whistling to himself as he left the building. Margaret Campbell Beckett was born in 1899 in New Zealand. The family had immigrated to the UK when she was young and they lived in cramped quarters in Hoxton, East London. When Margaret's father died during World War I, the family struggled financially and at that point Margaret turned to prostitution to earn money. Soliciting sex on the street was still legal until 1959. The trouble was, I think, I just before... Well, just before the war, they clamped down on brothels, mm-hmm. so it forced the women onto the streets, the streets okay. and it makes it less safe for them. Stupid, really, isn't it? Yeah. Closing a brothel. Um, when Margaret's, I think it's still illegal now, isn't it? To run a brothel. Yeah. So girls are still forced out on the streets, aren't they? If they want to, I suppose not anymore because you can just advertise online. Mm. You don't have to physically be outside, but still unsafer. Yeah, yeah. I know. Sure, you'd be better off in a house. With people With around people, you. Yeah, yeah, so you can call for help if you yeah. need it. And then obviously if someone, if you've got a client who is that way inclined, they're going to think twice about it because they'll know that they'll get, yeah. you know, they won't be able to, to get, get away, away with it. With yeah. You, yeah. So um, Margaret's when Margaret's husband, Frederick Lowe, passed away in 1932, she returned to sex work in order to pay her daughter's boarding fees. I'd love her. Um, so, yeah, this is what happened with Margaret. She and her family, they moved to, she moved to Southend-on-Sea. And she had a little job in a gift shop in Southend-on-Sea. Mm-hmm. And while she lived there, she met Frederick Lowe, her husband. He was quite a lot older than her. She was probably maybe in her early 20s and he was in his late 30s when they met. So there was a big age gap. But they fell in love, they got married. And after a few years, they adopted a little girl, a one-year-old girl called Barbara. And they had a lovely time until 1932 when Frederick died. And at that point, Margaret has got a little girl and no way to support her. Yeah. So um, what she decided to do, she... um, put Barbara in a boarding school in Southend and she returned to Soho to start working as a sex worker oh again. Oh, God. Yeah. And so her daughter didn't know that she was a sex worker or anything like that. I think she told her daughter that she was um, a receptionist at a club. Yeah, you're not so, going to tell her yeah, that, Yeah, she you? hid it from her. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, poor Margaret. She had a very tough life, very sad life. So she moved, she moved back to London and she was 
working as a sex worker again. Um, a couple of days before she was murdered, she got very badly beaten up by a client and um, he completely trashed her flat. Oh. But she wouldn't report it to the police <laughs> because she didn't want her secret to come out. She just said, oh, some stranger just turned up and came in and ransacked my house kind of thing. So even her neighbours didn't know that she was on the game because she kept it really quiet. She didn't. She kept herself to herself. Mm-hmm. She played the game of pretending she worked as a receptionist or that she worked as it was something to do with air raids and stuff so she could explain the unusual hours that she kept and things like that. Okay. Yeah, so she wasn't like some of the other women that we're going to talk about, whereas they all, like mixed with other sex workers they were openly on the game yeah. Margaret was very much isolated from that so I should imagine her life probably was quite lonely yeah and she lived for the visits from her daughter so about every three weekends Barbara would visit from South End mm-hmm. so Margaret's body wasn't discovered until the 13th of February when her 15 year old daughter Barbara came to visit her Barbara visited from South End on sea every third weekend and Margaret devoted this time to take her daughter out for sightseeing and cinema trips Having been told by a neighbour that Margaret hadn't been seen for several days, Barbara entered the flat that her mother lived in. In the bed under the covers that had been pulled up underneath her chin was the lifeless body of Margaret Lowe. She had been beaten and strangled to death with a silk stocking. Um, Injuries that the pathologist who performed her autopsy described as, quote, quite dreadful. Oh, God. And he went on to describe Margaret's killer as a savage sexual maniac who indulged in a wicked lust to perpetrate the most diabolical injuries on the women that he killed. Um, Poor Margaret had been extensively mutilated by several objects, including a razor blade, several knives, a poker, and she had been sexually mutilated with a candle. Fuck me. Her abdomen had been cut, exposing her internal organs, and a 10-inch gaping wound was found on the right side of her groin. Oh, I don't like that. Fingerprints were discovered on several items at the crime scene, and evidence indicated that, again, the perpetrator was left-handed. The injuries to Margaret's body and the evidence discovered at the scene led the pathologist to reach the conclusion that her murder had been carried out by the same individual who had murdered Evelyn Oatley. And I watched... um, I watched a documentary about this mm. the other day and they've they've still got all those crime scene evidences, Lauren. You can they? still see um <gasps> like the can opener, the, oh, the no. knives that he used on her. The knives were bread knives. Were they? Yes. Jesus. Disgusting. They didn't have a point. It was like a bread knife. It was like oh, Jesus Christ. Awful. Yeah, awful. Big well when knife, you said that gaping yeah. I don't like it. Nope. No, it's pretty grim, isn't it? Yeah. Apparently one of the officers on the scene said described um, the position of the body to be as you would expect of a woman of her occupation. Oh. What a prick. Oh, so. It Basically saying, well, what do you expect? She died on her back yeah. with her legs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's pretty Fucking derogatory, arsa. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's awful. Yeah, absolutely. This woman was a mum just trying to provide for her kid. There must have been so many. I mean, yeah. the amount of men that died in the war and that. I mean, her husband didn't even die in the war. He just died of natural causes. Natural but, causes. Um... So, this, um, so yeah, we come to uh, his next would be victim, don't we? Yeah, Kathleen McCulhay or forward slash king. That uh, we found that some of them go via different names, so just yeah. bear with us. So, Gordon picked up 25 year old Kathleen, handing her over two pound fee in advance. Kathleen took the charming airman at a flat to Southwick Street. But it was quite cold. We're in February, and February's mm. normally 
frigging cold, it's isn't it? It's about the coldest month. It is. So she's, they've got home to her flat and she's gone to the gas light and uh, gas fire and lit it. Um, so it was so bitter, she kept her boots on. So she's started to undress, the, um, but she's kept her because she wanted to stop her feet going on the chilly floor. So Gordon then tries to overpower her and strangle her like he did with the first victim. But because she still had her boots on, she was able to keep him away. So I'm thinking she's give, kicked him right in the nuts with mm. them boots, running and screaming to her neighbour. He followed in, uh, he followed out, sorry, saying he had had too much to drink and pressing more money in her hand. And it, that was a five pound note as an apology. And he um, made a swift exit. But because he was in such a panic state that she's seen him, she's run screaming to the neighbour and scared that the neighbour's going to come back in with God knows who, police, young servicemen with their guns. He's just run and left behind his RAF belt. So that's the first bit of um, evidence we've got that uh, it's starting to build up a bit of a case behind him, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think um, Catherine had had a bit of a bad time with him already in the cab. Okay. Because I think she sort of solicited in the West End, but she lived quite far away, so mm -hmm. I had to get a cab back to her place. And but but she said that he was like literally trying to sexually assault her in the cab, and she was like, "Can you just stop? Don't do it in front of the driver," kind of thing. And and yeah. that's why she lit the thing, like she lit the light when she got into the house because yeah. she had a horrible feeling about it. And he also he tried to persuade her to lay on the floor, and she refused. She was like, "No," because can you imagine if you're on the floor, you don't really have any where to go, do you? No. It's hard, isn't it? And like freezing cold as well. Yeah, freezing cold as well. Exactly. Oh, I'm just yeah. thinking, fuck, laying on that floor with me yeah. ass at. But good on her, he completely underestimated her. Yeah. So, yeah, good, good on girl. her. Absolutely. Good girl. But the attacker was not finished. After his aborted attack on Catherine, he crossed paths with Doris Junet. Doris, who was also known as Olga, was last seen by a friend of hers at about 10pm on the 12th of February at a corner house tea room. After parting ways with her friend Beatrice Lang, Doris and the Ripper crossed paths. Doris, who was a part-time sex worker, took him back to the flat she shared with her husband. Her husband, who had previously been a client, as she was known to occasionally return to the trade from time to time to supplement her husband's income. Now, Doris, she's called, she was known as Madame Olga. Nice. Yeah, so she did work as a sex worker before she got married, but she was a specialist sex worker. She was a madam. So she provided, I think, the ex-public school boys with canings and stuff yeah. like that yeah so she was BDSM. she was a miss whiplash mm -hmm. so she was a very specific set of skills <laughs> in her sex work um you know repertoire and um yeah so yeah that's why she's known as olga madam olga well, that is quite a fearful yeah. name yeah, yeah it's i good, like it? it and um yeah so her husband was her punter and when they got married he made her give it all up but they weren't doing too well he was 30 years older than her, her husband. Wow. And he had a lot of money. He, he owned this, that and the other. And just uh, just before she died, about a year before she died, he inherited a load of money from his mum as well when she passed away. So the pair of them went down to Hastings, I think I think it's Hastings, and they bought um, a tea shop. Oh. But the tea shop failed and they lost all their money. 
So her poor husband, who by now is 66 years old, they moved back to London. He has to take a job just working in a hotel oh, at God. 66 years old. And while he's out working at the hotel, she goes back on the game because money's so tight. Oh, and it's sickening. Yeah, so they've gone from there to there in like, like within a year. Yeah, exactly. He took the people to court who sold him the cafe because he said, you never showed me a full set of accounts. You promised me mm. this was a viable business. It's not... Whether they got anything back, who knows? Maybe they won the case, but they couldn't get any money back. Yeah. But the whatever happened, the poor bloke ended up losing like his life's money That's in awful. a very very poor investment. So you just think like poor old Doris should have just been serving up tea and cake she wouldn't have until been she retired. There. I was thinking, do you think that business because of the rationing and the war going mm. on and people not having much money? No, I don't know. I just think. Don't know. I think apparently it was a dead duck. Like they should not. The people that sold it to them swindled them. Ah, it was a con. It was like swindlers. They were con artists. Yes, they were con artists, and they swindled them. Bastards. So um, yeah, yeah. It's just it's horrible, isn't it? You get a little bit background. You think why was that woman in that yeah. place at that time? And it's just like the stars aligned. It's awful. just awful. One thing led to another down that path. To that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I mean, if um, Cafe Mohe hadn't been so kick-ass. Yeah. Doris would have been all right. Yeah. However. Yeah. Reader, let's go back to the story. So, Doris was known to occasionally return to her sex work from time to time to supplement her husband's income. Doris's body was discovered the following evening when her husband Henry returned home. The bedroom door had been locked and after unsuccessfully trying to pry it open, he got the police. When Constable William Payne attended the flat, he pried the door open and witnessed Doris naked, except for her dressing gown, on the bed with a silk stocking tied tightly around her neck. Scotland Yard's Criminal Investigation Department were alerted and Detective Leonard Clare noticed that Doris's jaw had been broken and she had been strangled to death with the stocking. At the autopsy, it was determined that Doris's breast and left side had been mutilated as she was dying. Oh, God. <sighs> After her death, the killer mutilated her abdomen and her genitals with a razor blade and a knife in a frenzy. Following Doris's murder, newspapers, who until now had hardly covered the murders, dubbed the killer the Blackout Ripper. The police love a nickname, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. This name was in reference to the similarities between his killings and those of Jack the Ripper, but also pointed to the fact that he used the blackouts of World War II to his advantage. Yeah. And following this murder, the murders became headline news all over the country. Yeah. It was like, yes, there's a war, but look what the fuck <clears> is going on in London yeah. at the moment. This is unbelievable. So, um, so yeah, it's like, yeah, exactly like Chuck the Ripper. Mutilation yeah, like of the abdomen and genitals. It's exactly the same yeah. on sex workers. It's it, yeah. fucking exactly the same. Do you think he had a fascination with Jack the Ripper? I don't know. Because when they caught him, he never even admitted he'd done it. Oh, He kept God. saying it was a case of miscarriage of justice. So he never told him why he did it. No. But God knows. God knows, yeah. Nothing. There's nothing in his background to suggest why he would do that. No. He weren't weren't violent. No, and I couldn't find anything because, as you said, it was more of a spree rather than... Yeah, um, it's like he snapped. And I I was waiting for something to tell us why, but I couldn't find anything to see why he snapped. And it was so bloody annoying. I know, there's nothing in my research to to offer explanation. And he was executed pretty sharpish, so it's not like... Anyone yeah. interviewed him 10 years down the line, he was like, yeah, okay, I'll tell you. Yeah. He took his secrets to the grave. Jeez. So that gets me on to Friday the 13th. Unlucky for some. Yeah. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. But I'll carry on. So Gordon was on the hunt again, and this time he thought he would make it easier for himself by visiting the local sex worker hotspot, what I mentioned earlier, the Brazil Universal. He found what he was looking for. Gordon approached a young woman. Now, she goes by many names that I've found. It's either Greta, Margaret or Mary Haywood. So he'd seen her standing alone and he's gone up to her and bought her a drink. This time, the anonymous date associated with the bad omens turned out to be lucky escape for the 32-year-old. We're not sure why, but despite her rejecting his offer for money for sex... £30, I dare you say. <laughs> so that's going to be quite a lot of money, isn't it? It's about a grand. It says yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, she still a compliment, uh, accompanied him into the dark streets. So we don't know why, because she, apparently she rejected his offer for sex. Why is she going in the dark streets with him? Blubby and job. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> apparently Margaret had been stood up. She was meant to meet a date there. Mm. I don't think she was on the game. Or she might have been a casual sex worker. Yeah, because where they were at, that mm-hmm. was the known sex work hotspot. Yeah. But then, you know, if she was a sex worker, she wouldn't have turned him down. Yeah, that's true. Unless she got, she may have got that spider sense of, yeah. mm, I don't know. Stay away. Plus by then, he's all over the newspapers and people yeah. are scared. That's true. But I think he just said, why don't we go somewhere else? And as they left and walked somewhere, walked, I think he said something like, let's go to like the Cafe de Paris mm. or something like that. And en route, he kept trying to make her take shortcuts yeah. and stuff. So, Ooh. yeah, I think he kind of duped her into it. That's yeah. what I can make out. Put a gun to her back. Mm. Yeah. So when they left, Greta said she that he had become unpleasantly forward. She kept protesting and struggled as he pushed her into a doorway where he choked her until she lost consciousness. But he was disturbed by a delivery boy and fled, leaving his gas mark and haversack printed with his service number 525987 behind. So that is a bingo card for the police, (laughs) isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Imagine that. So he's got spooked quickly. He's um, tried... And again, it doesn't seem to me, if he's doing it in the open, it ain't going to be as a violent attack as it, the others. Yeah, well, he tried to talk her into going into an air raid shelter with him. And she was like, not in your nelly, mate. Yeah. I ain't going in an air raid shelter with you. Thanks, but Because by then he kept saying, oh, I just want to kiss you. I just want to touch you. And she d- didn't want to. You know, she was a stranger and she didn't mm. want to. And she kept saying no. And she was adamant she was not going to go somewhere like... As, as quiet and isolated and dangerous as an air raid shelter with him and, and, and he lost his temper and was very aggressive towards her and like you say strangled her into unconsciousness he but doesn't know the word consent <laughs> he doesn't understand he does doesn't he? get it no, no means no so white noise in it 
Yeah. White noise. Yeah. Um, yeah, so luckily the delivery boy, John Shine. John Shine. I like that. I like John Shine. He sounds good, doesn't he? He's only like a, a teenager. Boy. I think he's about 18. A little Aww. teenage boy delivering some milk. So when he reached uh, Margaret, she had regained consciousness and he accompanied her to the local police station to provide an eyewitness testimony before Margaret was escorted to the hospital by a police officer. So when the police went back to go to the crime scene, that's yeah. when they discover, like you mentioned, his haversack, mm-hmm. which has got his bloody, um, it's, it's uh, RAF regimental numbers. It's like an identification yeah. number for the RAF. Fucking shoot, Might as well man. have left his name on yeah. it and, where, and his address. What a pillar. Fingerprints. But he left fingerprints everywhere. It was yeah. like he didn't care. This spree, just it like frenzy is a word that comes up mm-hmm. quite a lot in this case, is that it, something snapped and he's got no control because he's doing absolutely nothing, really. No. People are seeing him going off with the women. He's leaving his fingerprints yeah. everywhere. He's left his belt at one crime scene. He's left his bag yeah. at another and his gas mask. I mean, it's just not... He's, he doesn't seem like he's that bright. No. <laughs> or he doesn't care and he wants to be caught, but... Not the sharpest tool in the yeah, box. God knows. So, this led to the identification of Gordon Frederick Cummings. So, Gordon was questioned in connection with the Blackout Ripper murders on the 14th of February, where he was described as being evasive and arrogant. He denied any involvement and provided seemingly solid alibis for each of the nights in question. Following Gordon's claim of innocence, he was arrested and held on remand. Um, The sign-in sheets appeared to corroborate his claims, suggesting that he'd returned and was back again to his barracks before each of the murders. However, this seemingly solid alibi quickly unravelled. So, sign-in sheets is just what the squaddies have to sign in and out of the barracks. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, they've gone, they've checked, where was you on the night of the 8th? Oh, when when, um, Evelyn Hamilton was murdered, you were safely tucked up back in your barracks. Sorry, Gordon. However... However, dun, dun, dun. anyone who's ever used a clock in and out machine will know that if you've got a mate, yeah. you don't necessarily need to do it yourself. And that's what happened in this case. <gasps> so the police discovered that Gordon's fellow airmen would often vouch for each other's return to the base. So they would sign each other in and out. On the night in question, Gordon and a fellow airman had snuck out of their quarters at midnight. Trophies. So they they check his room and they find trophies in his room and on his, in his coat. Oh, God. So trophies were discovered in Gordon's billet. Police found a cigarette case that had belonged to Margaret Lowe and a watch that had belonged to Doris Jeunet, identified as she had covered the back of the watch with a square of sticking plaster. She was, you know, some people are allergic to metal, so yeah. they put something like, I used to put clean nail varnish on the back of my watches. And so she had cut a little square of plaster out and stuck it to the back of her wristwatch. And... Um, so that was found in his like room, mm-hmm. and when they checked her room, they found the whole piece of plaster with the little square cut out of it, so they could match oh, it up, really? so they could prove that that was her piece of sticking plaster. Therefore, her watch, like a jigsaw piece. Yes, exactly. And also, the watch had been gifted to her by her husband, Mister Junet. He had given it to her, so it was a very distinctive watch. Oh. Apparently, he didn't have any hands, and it had a little inside joke that was. I really struggled to tell the time of that watch. <laughs> so it was a very distinctive trophy. Yeah. And it was it really connected him to the murder of Doris. Or Madame Olga. Yeah, Olga. And um, the cigarettes and cigarette case that belonged to Evelyn Hamilton were found in his pocket. 
in his coat pocket. The police fingerprinted him and they found a match on the tin opener, that gruesome piece of evidence. And when they asked him to sign his name, lo and behold, he was left-handed. <gasps> oh, that's clever. Yeah, so there's a ton of physical evidence there. Mm. Um, so not only that, so he left two... With two eyewitnesses, mm-hmm. there was two women that he managed not to kill. He tried to, didn't he? But they both got away. Yeah. So you've got um, Margaret Hayward and Catherine Mulgahay were mm-hmm. asked to observe a police lineup to identify their attacker. Catherine Mulgahay was a- unable to positively identify him, but Margaret was certain that Gordon Cummings was the man who attacked her in the doorway just days earlier. I mean, Margaret had spent a time in the um, brasserie, hadn't she? Yeah. Chatting and drinking with him, so yeah. she could identify him very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, Catherine was unable to identify him, um, perhaps because it was just too dark and stuff, maybe. Yeah. She just picked him up on the street. They got in a dark cab. They got in a dark flat. She couldn't see him yeah. clearly. Um, on the 16th of February, uh, 1942, Gordon was charged with the murders of Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe and Doris Junay. On the 20th of February, he was further charged for assaulting Margaret Hayward and Catherine Mulcahy. And on the 27th of March, he was formally charged with the murder of Evelyn Hamilton. And his trial began on the 27th of April, 1942, at the Old Bailey. Gordon, who was described by a local newspaper as clean-shaven with wavy brown hair brushed back, during the trial, he was witnessed to be talking to his lawyers and smiling at his wife, who believed that he was innocent. The first witness to take the stand was Detective Chief Superintendent Frederick Shurell, who was adamant that the fingerprints found at the crime scene were a match, and with the defence countering that the print was too faint to conclude that it belonged to Gordon. Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who had performed Evelyn's autopsy, testified that Evelyn's cause of death was a deep cut to her throat and that she would have bled out in five minutes. He'd gone to see his wife the night that he killed Evelyn Oatley. You mentioned that, didn't you? Yeah. To borrow a pound for a night out on the mm-hmm. town in the West End from their flat that they rented in Southwark. I just added that detail because I thought it was very callous. Yeah, awful. So. I mean, he's borrowed a pound of his wife to go and hire a prostitute. Yeah. That shows, I mean, yeah. even if he didn't kill the women, what, what level of respect has he got for his own wife? Exactly. Fuck off. Awesome. Absolutely I mean, awesome. that's why I did it in. I know, I know I'm sort of doubling up what you said, right. but I just thought... That goes to show how shit his character yeah. is. Yeah, I agree. Oh, hello, darling. Can I hurt? Can I borrow pounds, please? I haven't got any money. No. I need a blowjob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> idiot. Yeah, idiot. Idiot. Furthermore, he told the courts that time of death occurred at roughly 12.30am. However, he also stated that it could actually have occurred up to two hours before or after. Obviously, it's not an exact mm-hmm. science. Plus, it's a very cold night, etc. Fellow airman Felix Sampson was next to take the stand. He testified that on the night of Evelyn's murder, he and Gordon had solicited two sex workers sometime between 10.30 and 11pm just outside the Monaco restaurant in Piccadilly Circus and had agreed to meet them to meet him back outside the restaurant after using the sex workers' services. Felix arrived back at the restaurant at roughly half past 11. <laughs> Felix is a quick boy. I know, let's go. Fast, fast, fuck boy. Fast Felix. Yeah. Uh, so he, yes. excited. <laughs> Leave him alone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's exciting times, isn't it? <laughs> they fly by the city of their pants, yeah. these um, fly boys. Oh, they do. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so probably, I don't know, half an hour, an hour or so later, he pops back, waits for about 25 minutes for Gordon to return before wandering off to a local pub. So this is like midnight. There's pubs open still. Wow. It's, buzzing in yeah. London still absolutely buzzing 
Uh, he arrived at the living quarters at 6am. <laughs> he stayed out all night and found Gordon fast asleep. And he later asked Gordon what time he'd returned. He told him sometime between 3.30 and 4am and that the woman that I went with didn't satisfy me, so I went and found someone else. Gordon was the next and final person to take the stand in his own defence. While he admitted to being in Evelyn's company before her death, he insisted he had no involvement in it and had been with a different sex worker afterwards and claimed that Evelyn had been very much alive when he'd left her. So bullshit. Yeah, it sounds like Felix saw him trot off with Evelyn and he said, oh no, you know, she didn't satisfy my amazing needs. My sex drive is so off the chart. I had to go for another brass and blah, blah, blah. You can imagine with his phony, posh accent giving it some while spending his wife's quid. Douche. What a loser. Yeah. Anyway... After the trial, it wasn't very long, but there was a ton of physical evidence to link him. Obviously, twat kept trophies. And then he was a thief as well. Yeah. Obviously, he nicked, like you mentioned before, that yeah. he used to subsidise his lifestyle by thieving. And he, yeah. he robbed his victims as well. Yeah. So he found his staff, the trophies and the stuff that he'd thieved off of them. Um, after the defence and prosecution summing up, the judge instructed the jury to decide whether Cummings was guilty. Um, he said something along the lines of, there's no question these women have been murdered, but the question is, is the man in the dock the murderer? Ah. So, yeah, basically, have we done enough to prove that it is Gordon Cummings? At 4pm that day, they retired, and after just 35 minutes later, they returned. The jury found Gordon Cummings guilty of the murder of Evelyn Oatley. I want to cheer. I concur! <laughs> yes! Yeah. Mr Justice Asquith sentenced him to death. With these words, quote, Gordon Frederick Cummings, after a fair trial, you have been found guilty of the charge of murder. As you know, there's only one sentence which the law permits me to pronounce. Death. In my mind, he's putting the little black cloth cap on his head while he talks. And that is you be taken from this place to a lawful prison and thence to a place of execution and that you be you there be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. So, he was kept at Wandsworth Prison to await his execution. He never admitted his guilt and he claimed to have been a victim of miscarriage of justice. After a rejected appeal, Cummings was executed by Albert Pierre Point on the 25th of June, 1942. Ironically, during an air raid. Oh, what goes around comes around, yeah. you son of a bitch, blackout yeah. prick. His wife never believed he was guilty right up until the 1980s. Really? Yeah, so you know that programme I said I watched about yeah. the Scotland Yard and all the evidence that they've still got? One, The custody sergeant there said that he used to work with a, an old boy. I mean, it's quite an old programme mm. anyway, but he used to work with someone who worked there years ago in the 80s, and he said that she came into the police station. I don't know what it must be saying to yeah. Gordon, but she, at that point, said she still had 100% faith in her husband that he it was a miscarriage of justice. Hell. Maybe mistaken identity or something like that, because well. she still 100% believed he was completely innocent. Is that your favourite executioner? Albert Pierpont, yeah. yeah, he's the famous one. Yeah. yeah, he hung all the Nazi war criminals yes, as well. that's, I think, how I recognise his name. Yeah, he's he's probably the only, you know, one that you can name, really, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, but he, yeah, Albert Pierpont. Yeah. Perhaps we'll do a patron on him one day. Yes. Um, so there were two other murders, which the Met were, are convinced were his earlier murders oh, as well. Oh, really? Yeah, there was two other women. When you hear about it, you think it sounds very much like it was him. So... Cummings is suspected. I apologise. I've literally just got this off of Wikipedia because it's just little. It's just an article. It's just like a footnote because I don't think the police even investigate or anything like. So, 
Cummings is suspected of committing his first two murders in October 1941. So that's not many months. Was three no. months, four months before? His first suspected victim was a 19-year-old clerk named Maple Churchyard. And she was murdered on the 13th of October. Churchyard is known to have frequently engaged in casual sexual relationships with servicemen. Her nude body was found by workmen in a bombed house on Hampstead Road the day after her murder. She'd been strangled to death with her own cami knickers by an individual described by the pathologist who examined her body as being a left-handed <gasps> individual. As the bruising around her neck indicated her murderer had more strength in his left hand than in his right. In addition, her handbag had been emptied, exactly yep. the same as Evelyn Hamilton, with several contents missing, exactly yep. the same. Churchyard had not been sexually assaulted. Her death is believed to have occurred at approximately 9.15pm. This makes sense now, because yeah. my one wasn't that, that brutal. Yeah. He's gearing up. He's get to this one when mm. it's brutal, it's strangulation. Yeah. I know it's not great. And it's great. not rape either. It's not rape. It's more like a, a murder robbery. Yeah. Yeah. Like Evening Hamilton, murder yeah. robbery. Mm. And he's just gearing up and he's just losing control and... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, mate, it does make sense. Sorry, go on, carry no, on. No, you're right. As long as it is the same bloke, maybe mm-hmm. there's maybe there's a left-handed one who robs and murders and then there's Gordon Cummings who's yeah. the sexual predator as well. Yeah. Or like you say, it could be the same man and he's just... Gearing up. Going yeah. crazy, yeah. So only four days later, on the 17th of October, a 48-year-old widow named Edith Eleanor Humphreys was found lying upon her bed at her Regent's Park home. She'd been extensively bludgeoned about the face and head before her assailant had attempted to strangle her before cutting her throat. Poor lady. Fucking hell. Fucking hell. That's brutal. Yeah. Humphreys had also suffered a single stab wound to her skull, which had penetrated her brain. Um, She was still alive when they found her, but she died shortly after her admission to hospital. The door to her property was ajar, and investigators found no signs of a forced entry to her home, but several items of jewellery had been stolen. At the time of these two murders, Gordon Cummings was stationed in Colerne, Wiltshire, although when on leave, he was known to have frequently visited London in nearby St John's Wood. Wow. So, it's got him written all over yes. there could There probably was, there were more. I watched a documentary about this, actually, about a week or so ago, mm-hmm. and... I stuck it on and I was a bit confused. I was like, this is all about Berlin. But what it was, it was really clever because at exactly the same time as Gordon Cummings was active over here in London, there was another bastard in Berlin doing exactly the same thing. No. Because Berlin obviously was subject to blackout exactly the same. And he used to stalk women from the train. (gasps) So he'd see that it's the same thing, isn't it? Most of the men are off to war. Yeah. The women still have to work. They're expected to chip into the war Mm -hmm. effort. And they've got, like, there's no one to protect them. No. And then you've got someone who's going to take advantage yeah. of it. And Berlin had exactly the same thing. Jesus. He hung around the train stations waiting for the women to finish their really late shifts in the factories or wherever they'd been. Oh, dirty bastards. Pitch black because of blackout. And then he'd get them. Killed them. Exactly the same as this one. A blackout a blackout ripper, but the German oh, one. God. It's crazy, wow. isn't it? But yeah, it someone had, had seen that correlation and they have made a documentary about it. It's really good. Wow, I'll have to try and watch it. Mm. Yeah, so there we have it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Thanking you. We have come to the end of our seventh episode for this series, The Blackout Ripper. Yeah, it was a joyful one. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I know. No, <laughs> yeah. thank you so much. Um, I wanted to say I put a poll on Patreon, and the winner was Des, so we're looking into that at the minute. That's uh, Dennis Nielsen. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you pop over to Patreon? We do put some polls on there. We've got loads of episodes. We'd love to have you over there. 
Yep, and I would just like to thank you all for listening to our Waffle and Drivel and I hope we've been at least a smidge entertaining to get you through these dark January, February months. Yes, definitely. We will love you a long time. See you next time. See you later.